Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Emily Jashinsky of CounterPoints. Now, I heard that some people were saying... Yes. Uh, we'd like to see Kyle and Emily debate culture war stuff. Well, they didn't specify what they wanted to see in terms of the conversation, but that was kind of my assumption. So, yeah, we got some viewer comments over at Breaking Points that were like, love to see a Kyle and Emily show, because sometimes I'll do the show with Emily, sometimes Ryan will do the show with Sagar, so sometimes we do interesting mixes over there just based on who needs to be out that day. So I was like, you know what, that actually would be interesting, because Emily does a little more cultural stuff than Sagar and I focus on. And you do a bit more cultural stuff, especially right now on your channel than we do. So I was like, ah, oh, that could be that could be a good combo. So we decided to to give the people what they want and have Emily on the show. You guys are getting what you want. And I will say that in my defense, that I, I view it as purely defensive. You don't need to have a defense. The reason you why cover I, what you want to cover. No, but my focus <laughs> normally is was was not that for a right. very long time. It was yeah. more economic stuff and, and things of that nature. But I just see this rise of the far right and how hard they're leaning into the culture war. So I'm like, well, somebody's gotta say something to say you guys are wrong. Well, you're seeing what is a really troubling, like backsliding. So even on just the issue of gay marriage, you know, there was, a, after the SCOTUS decision, there was a sense of like, all right, sort of mission accomplished on this, not only in terms of the politics of it, it's off the table, but this is not a focus of the right anymore. And then with the rise of, you know, their freak out over trans kids first, but then trans everybody. And then that has bled into um, rising, you know, uh, rising opposition to gay marriage among the right. So it just feels like from where the Republican Party was, even in 2016, when Trump was selling like pride merchandise to now, there's been a huge backslide that you can't just, you know, you can't just ignore it. Absolutely. And that's why I'm talking about it. So yeah. Before we get into that, though, it should be an interesting discussion slash debate with Emily. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, so the first thing I wanted to talk about is the thing that was like the number one issue on Twitter <laughs> and the Internet over the past, I don't mm -hmm. know, three or four days or mm -hmm. whatever. So let me give everybody the backstory to this. The submarine, right? Well, <laughs> I was obsessed with that. <laughs> I was absolutely obsessed with that. You guys covered it as well. Mm -hmm. But no, I'm talking about other than the submarine, because you're right, that is the number one story. I saw on my Twitter timeline people debating debates. Right. And whether or not it's ever worth it to really engage in deba debates. And the idea was, should you or should you not, quote unquote, debate cranks? Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. So that's the meta question. I want to get to that in just a second. But first, let me give everybody the backstory as to how we got here. OK. There's this guy by the name of Dr. Peter Hotez, who has previously been on Rogan's podcast, I believe, at least two times. Um, this guy is a vaccine scientist. He's been involved in making the patent free covid vaccines. Um, and this guy shared an article on Twitter. It was a Vice article that basically said, hey, Spotify has stopped even trying to stem Joe Rogan's vaccine misinformation. So he tweeted that out, and Joe responded to it and said, I'll give you $100,000 to a charity of your choice if you debate RFK Jr. on my show. Right, who but, he had just had on. Had that just was had the subject on. of the article. Yeah. Correct. And, and I, Peter Hotez, <clears throat> I don't know if he watched the podcast or didn't, but he read the article and he was basically like, yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of this stuff coming from Joe, so I'm sharing this article. So Hotez then declines and basically says, I don't want to be on the Jerry Springer show. His argument is like, you know, I, I, get, I don't know if he made this argument explicitly, but RFK had a solo podcast with um, Rogan, and I think his feeling was, well, just bring me on for another solo podcast, right? 
uh, and Joe was insistent on no debate, and then a bunch of other uh, creators got involved, and Elon they're like, I'll give $100,000, I'll yeah. give $250,000, and then the number kept going up and up and up, and at least to this point, it looks like Hotez has not said, okay, um, I'll, I'll debate it. So there's three questions here that we need to get to. Number one, the main point of that uh, Vice article was basically like, pro-censorship. Like, right. somebody needs to do something about this horrendous vaccine misinformation. <clears throat> um, number two, is debating worth it, and should Dr. Hotez debate um, RFK Jr.? And then number three, and this is the part that I think most people are leaving out in this conversation, is like, talking about some of the specific claims of RFK Jr. to decide whether or not it actually is factually false or true. Right. Okay, so let's take them one by one. First, go your thoughts on the censorship portion of the article. I mean, obviously, like that one's an easy one. I don't agree that that's the approach, that that's the correct approach to quote unquote misinformation. We've had so many examples of where social media companies have tried to be the arbiters of truth and have fallen flat on their face. And I think in a democracy or on the side of free speech and in the, on the side of engagement, and I guess that's my overall view is, listen, I have no... Um, I don't delude myself about the number of people who are actually open to listening to an exchange of ideas and truly changing their mind. But I have to believe for us to have a like functioning democracy and as someone who actually believes in the voice of the people and considers herself a populist, like, you have to believe that there's some group of people out there who are willing to listen to evidence and listen to someone's view that they disagree with and be moved on that. So I do think that in general, in general, and there are specific instances that you could, you know, debate the merits of, but in general, engagement with a touchy topic or engagement with figures who are controversial, who are saying things that are flat out wrong, which I think that RFK Jr. is, is a much better approach than just trying to silence, censor, like push out of the, the conversation. Yeah, so on the censorship portion, I agree with you. Um, I really don't think that these social media companies uh, or podcasting outlets or whatever should be in the business of uh, having a ministry of truth and determining who's right and wrong and acting accordingly. I, accordingly, I will say, though, I am OK now when I've grown to this position. I didn't always have this position, mm -hmm. but I am OK with just the, the like the little labels underneath that are sort of like bother me. That doesn't bother you me. Know, I also, it's like, here's what the actual, you know, most medical bodies are actually saying about X, Y or Z or here's what the most experts are saying about historical event. Why? Right. Like, I have no problem with that being underneath. I don't think that that's particularly effective. I don't think I, most people are going to click it. It's more of a cover your ass than anything. I, I understand that, yeah. but I also, I have no problem with that because I do think sometimes people say insane things and it's just you give the misimpression of like, well, this is actually the straight truth. And it's like, well, not really. And here's a little something to show you that there is another side to this that you might want to consider. What did you think about, Sagar and I had a little bit of a debate on the show about the community notes feature of Twitter. What's your opinion of that? Um, I mean, I guess that sort of falls under the banner of what I'm talking about right now. I yeah. Mean, you could you could disagree and say, hey, it should only be done by people who have some degree of expertise to put sort of a label underneath. Yeah. Or you could say, do it democratically or whatever. Uh, I don't know. I'm 50-50 on how you want to go about doing it or if you do both of those things at the same time. But I think you, it's okay to have that because at, at a certain point, um, I really don't think that like the free marketplace of idea, ideas and the cream always rises to the top and the correct answer is going to yeah, win out. That's just objectively untrue at this point. We've seen that sometimes the dumbest, most insane, most idiotic theories are the ones that actually 
get the most eyeballs and get people starting to believe it. Yeah, I, I have actually found the community notes feature useful. to be useful at times. Mm. Because I mean, you think about it, like you're scrolling Twitter, you see some claim, and it's at least a flag when people have appended notes there that make some sense. It's at least a flag to be like, let me dig into that. Like, yeah. let me question that. Let me not just take that at face value. Especially, listen, we all have our blind spots or things that fit into like our ideological view of the world that we're more susceptible to believing something that is false on. So I have found it, personally, I have found it useful as a way of being like, let me just check into this a little bit further. Yeah, and also I've noticed this too with the community notes. Sometimes they give, it's it's like gives you missing context. Right. Might not make the, you know, the claim isn't totally different, but it's a lot more nuanced than it right. was first appeared. And so that is a positive thing in my opinion. Yeah. Okay, so now let's get to the second part, which is the debate angle to this. Mm -hmm. This is the one where people seem to have the most um, uh, hardcore decisions and have reached the most hardcore conclusions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But what are you laughing at? I just, it's just like, a, it, to me, it's funny that that ends up being the focus of this whole I know. I, I agree with that. Yeah. It's like you guys are missing the forest for the trees or yeah. whatever the saying the is. I don't even know if I got that right. Yeah, you got it right. Uh, I was going right. to say forest through the trees because that sounds better, but it's forest for the trees, right? Yeah. Very weird. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. so on the debate portion, my take is this. Look, I'm under no illusions about how well debate works. I honestly think it's more <laughs> of a performance than anything else. It is, And yeah. usually the person who's more charismatic and just more likable. Or more confident. Yeah, it ends up winning. Yeah. That's, that's usually how it works. So it's really not the way to ultimately determine truth. Having said that, um, I don't like the totally defeatist and nihilistic attitude of like, you can never, uh, you know, engage with it because then you legitimize the opinion, which is something a lot of people say. And uh, it, look, I, I want to be kind because I kind of get it. Like CNN used to have these debates between somebody who believes in global warming, like, uh, Bill Nye the science guy versus Marsha Blackburn the congresswoman who's a climate science denier yeah. and they would debate it as if it's a 50-50 proposition when it's not or yeah. they would debate you know intelligent design versus evolution and that's not really an actual debate and you're giving the misimpression that it's a 50-50 issue when it's not however having said that it's like what do you do if these bad ideas that are incorrect are just spreading unchecked is it just like unilaterally disarm and you're not allowed to engage with it because if you engage with it you're like somehow by definition, making it stronger. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think sometimes you're in a position where you have to respond to it. But I will say this, for Peter Hotez specifically, I don't blame him for saying, I don't want to do the debate, because I don't think he'd win it. Yeah. I think he might be right on factual stuff, but I don't think he's going to deliver it in a way that is going to land better than the way RFK does it. So what I wish he would have done is said, I'm not good at debate, just, you know, full disclosure, I'm not good at it. Yeah. So I'm going to bring in this person who I, I trust their judgment. I think they're right on the issue. And they'll stand they have in the communication and debate for me. They have the communication skills to do to it. Pull it off. That's what I think would have been. And people still would have spun it like the fact <clears throat> that you specifically don't want to debate is because you know you're wrong. I don't buy that at all. Yeah. I don't buy that at all. I don't think anyone is under like a moral obligation to debate any one person on any one particular program. So yeah, with regard to Hotez, like if he feels like he's not up to the challenger for it, you know, he may be more of the view, I don't directly know, but he may be more of the view of like, don't platform the views and more of the sort of pro-censorship right. inclined. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he may be coming at this from an ideological position that I don't hold. But like I said, I don't think any one person is under some sort of like moral obligation to debate any particular topic, even if it's a topic you have expertise in, even if it's a topic you've weighed in on, even if it's a topic you've done other media appearances on. That doesn't doesn't land with me. With regards to 
there's two pieces here. There's like the principle of do you platform these views and do you engage with these views? And is it problematic if you engage with people who have, you know, quote unquote problematic views, which again, I, I genuinely think RFK Jr. on vaccines, I think his views are I'll get to, I'll get to are that wrong. in a second. But so do you engage with that's like a principle thing. I, I disagree with people who say as a matter of principle, you don't do that. OK, I do think there's a tactical question of when is it useful, right? What's the setting? What's the context in front of what audience with what moderator with, you know, who's in there and how prominent are the views or the person that you're going to be going up against? And I think if it's something that's really fringe, that is truly a sort of like, you know, crank ideology that doesn't have a lot of purchase the earth with is the flat. American public. The earth is flat. Yeah. You're not really doing anything beneficial. Holocaust denialism. <laughs> you are kind of Holocaust like denialism, giving right? oxygen to something that didn't have a lot of oxygen. But, you know, with the anti-vax stuff. And it's so prominent. It's so widespread. You have to grapple with it in one way or another. And if you have somebody who can debate it effectively and is right, that is a good way to go about it. The cat is already out of the bag. With it's already stuff. out of the bag. It's gone. It's and done. it hasn't yeah. been for a while. I mean, it's it's gotten supercharged with COVID. And the other thing in terms of RFK Jr., I mean, this is somebody who's polling at 20% in a Democratic primary, has a huge online fan base, is becoming increasingly prominent, has a very powerful voice. You know, his organization is also, you know, influential in terms of the whole anti-vax world. So I don't think with him in particular, I don't, and with that viewpoint, I don't think you can just say like, oh, we can't give it oxygen. It's past that point. It's got the oxygen. Now you do need now people. Now how do you handle it? What do you how do? How do you handle it? You do need people who are experts and who are effective communicators to at least do their best. I also think that, um, like, Joe has inserted himself in this in a sort of, um, I don't know what the right word is, but in an adversarial way, right, that makes it seem like if he were to host the debate, he would be really unfair on the side of RFK Jr. And from seeing it, and, you know, he, he obviously let RFK Jr. say what he wanted to say. Joe has said his own things about vaccines, specifically the COVID vaccine and ivermectin or whatever. But from watching Joe in these sorts of interactions in the past, I don't think that he would be, like, wildly unfair to whatever expert came on and tried to debate this subject. And the man has the largest podcast in the world. Surely there is some percentage of that audience that might have listened to the RFK Jr. podcast and been kind of like, oh, he's got some points on this stuff that would have their views shaped that are sort of like not hard in their views that could have their views rebutted if you had someone who was effective on to go point by point of like, all right, you cited this study, but here's actually the problem with that. And here's the retraction. And here's the point that undermines the point that you're making. I do think that there are some minds that could be changed. So to, re to recap here, and then we'll get to the final point, yeah. which is the specific RFK claims. On the censorship question, I'm against it. You're against it. That's not the way to go about it. I'm fine with a community notes thing or a banner that says, here's you know better information on this. Yeah. But that's as far as I'm willing to go. On the debate question, I, I'm pro-debate, but I would understand if Hotez doesn't want to do it because I just don't think he's a good communicator. I just don't think he's a good debater. I think he would get railroaded, even though I agree with him more on the substance. So I think a better debater should step in for him and debate the question. Like I'm pro-debate, but just I wouldn't use him just because I think he would do a disservice, even if he's factually correct. Mm. Okay. But then I haven't watched him enough to say, to be honest with you. I've seen enough of yeah. him where I don't. You he's don't got, he's... He's, some people just have that thing where you don't want to pay attention when they talk and they're, they come across as like, you're just like, no. 
And yeah. he's got that to me, to me. Now, that could be niche on my perspective. I think he's done a lot of great work. He does patent-free vaccines, which is literally the thing that everybody was saying we should be doing. If you want to defeat Big Pharma, you go to the person who does the patent-free vaccines, right? He's not making money off it. The big pharmaceutical companies are making money off it. So in some ways, he's a hero. In some ways, the anti-vaxxers should be the ones who are like, well, at least this guy's doing it the right way, yeah. right? He's not, you know, price gouging as a result of it. But anyway, I digress yeah. from that. Yeah. Let's get to the, to the main question now. Because a lot of people are using this exchange to then go, aha, uh -huh. So you know RFK Jr. is right because he's <laughs> ducking the debate. And that, look, all I have to say to you, if that's your take, is get off the internet. Like, you have toxic internet brain worms. Yeah. It, and so I actually, I went through a lot of the claims mm -hmm. just because, and just a cursory look, you know, just doing basic Google search and right. reading a couple different sources. Yeah. So one of the big claims that he was making over and over is that vaccines cause autism. Dr. Andrew Wakefield is the guy who really brought this into everybody's consciousness, and he had a couple studies on this. Well, he had his medical license revoked because the studies were wrong. They were retracted for being flawed. And they weren't just a little flawed. They were massively flawed. They didn't even have a fucking control group in his first anti-vax study. So I think the thing that frustrates a lot of people who are pro-science and watching this unfold is that, like, he's not even close to right. But, yeah. you're, getting, but you're, giving, you're giving people the impression, like, oh, you can't just be. He's so, his ideas are so unbeatable. That you can't even engage with him. And it's like, that's just fundamentally not true. So, um, and on the vaccines cause autism point, the claim is, well, they cause autism because they have mercury in them, or more specifically, thimerosal. Mm -hmm. And the thimerosal was taken out of the vaccines in 2001. Right. That's the first point. The second point is, even if it wasn't, there are two kinds of mercury. There's methylmercury, which is hazardous, and then there's ethylmercury, which isn't. And it was the non-hazardous version that was in the vaccines. Yeah. Um, but like, we're not even, we're not even close to a good claim here. And any basic research, you're gonna walk away going, oh, well that's questionable at best. Yeah, well, and there's another point that he makes, and I didn't watch his Rogan appearance, so I can't say whether he made this in um, in that particular appearance, but I've seen him make it a number of times. That's like, you know, autism rates really started to rise at this certain point. Diagnostics. In the, well, two things, so. In the 90s when, you know, there was this spike in uh, instances of autism and there's only a th few things that you could attribute it to. And this is one of them. Right. But there's two things. Number one, yes, the diagnostics and like the definition changed. So suddenly you had more people meeting the definition and you had more diagnoses than you had before. Number two, after thimerosal is taken out of the vaccines, the rates of autism continue to rise. So, so, so if, thimerosal prevented vaccines, right. or, or excuse me, prevented autism, right. so, if I'm using this guy's logic. Right, right exactly. Put the and thimerosal it, back in. I mean, it's a, it's a classic fallacy. Correlation doesn't equal causation. And right. so when you take the thing out that you said was the bad thing and the rate, rates of autism still rise, that's very inconvenient for your theory that that was the original cause. Correct. Now, he also goes on, to be fair, because I went through a bunch of the claims that were yeah. like the bigger claims in the podcast. He makes these big claims about Wi-Fi and how, or 5G or whatever, and how it causes leaky brain, et cetera. And from my uh, research on it, uh, Wi-Fi is definitely radiation, mm -hmm. okay? And there's short wavelengths for radiation and there's long wavelengths. The short wavelengths are considered bad. Okay. The long wavelengths are considered relatively safe. So this is the long wavelength kind. But to be fair, we really don't know. There may be problems associated with Wi-Fi. There's some evidence that uh, it's possible. But this is one of the more, like, it's an agnostic area. Yeah. So when people say, like, it definitely doesn't, that's actually, we don't know that, right? right? But the problem is RFK is the opposite extreme, where he's like, it definitely does. And it's like, 
No, not necessarily. We don't. I don't understand why some people aren't comfortable with just agnosticism on some fronts. Sometimes it's okay. If you don't know, the intellectually honest thing to do is to say, I don't know, which gets to my biggest problem with RFK Jr., is that he oftentimes makes these claims very confidently in a bombastic way. And the second I look them up, they crumble under minimal scrutiny. Yeah. So this thing he's been going around saying, uh, you know, the U.S. has given $8 trillion to Ukraine. That, first of all, we spent $7 trillion in the entire war in Iraq. And that's when you extrapolate out to the year 2053 and you include the interest. Yeah. You're telling me we sent more money than we spent in our entire 20 plus year in the war in Iraq than we did in Ukraine. So when I look it up, the highest number I get, and most of the estimates are way lower than this also, it's like 100 to 150 billion is where most people say. The most you, uh, that I've seen is maybe 200 billion is the amount that we sent to Ukraine. You are fucking 40 times off and you're saying it like it's an ironclad stone cold fact. So I actually believe Peter Hotez when he says, I don't want this to be the Jerry Springer show. I'm not doing a service if I debate this with you. My only disagreement would be, I get it. You're not good at debate. You're not as good of a communicator. But for the love of God, send somebody in there who is a good communicator, who is an expert on these things. Yeah. And then you guys have the debate. Because, you know, it, honestly, for a guy, it's not going to be that difficult to say, here's where you're wrong. Jamie, pull that up. And then they pull it up. Because there's one point in the, in the podcast with RFK where Joe says, Jamie looked that up because the claim is, you know, Wi-Fi causes leaky brain and has all these problems with it or whatever. Jamie pulls up, but this isn't Jamie's fault because he didn't know. It looks like a super legit website. Right. But they go to like, I forget the name of the Children's Health Fund or something like that, or Environmental Health Fund, something like that. It's a website and it says that that claim is true, but that website is one of RFK Jr.'s website <laughs> and there's no disclosure about it. Like he's connected to that website. Yeah. And, you know, Joe sees that and God bless him, but he's like, oh my God, it's true. We got to get rid of Wi-Fi. And it's like, oh, <laughs> for the love of God, you need to get on somebody who's educated in these things, who's an expert and who is a good communicator, who is charismatic and can go back against the claims. Because to your point, I do think if somebody said, hey, that's wrong and here's why that's wrong. And Joe's there. If you show Joe, hey, here's a reputable source that says it's wrong. I do think he'll be like, OK, maybe that okay, is wrong. Got it. Or at yeah. least move to agnosticism. Right. right. But yeah. unfortunately, RFK is out there and he's saying the things he's saying and there's just no good check on him. And it's like you pick the most like doofy people imaginable to to you come and fight me. And it's right. like, even if Hotez was right about everything he said, everybody's going to be like, boo, boo, screw this guy, boo. Yeah, yeah. He just doesn't very, have that aura very, about him, the charisma about him. Very possible. But I, I don't accept the just complete nihilism of in no circumstance on any platform oh, with any course. person does debate change minds. No, it's too late. And it's just purely it's too about late performance, et cetera. I mean, yeah, I, I do think some of these claims need to be effectively checked. And I just want to say, too, about uh, RFK Jr., who I've now interviewed a couple times and had, you know, had some tense exchanges with, had some good exchanges with. I don't doubt his sincerity. I don't doubt that he believes the things that he is saying. And there are certain things that I agree with him on. But if I had to say, you know, this is a man whose dad and uncle were murdered at while he was very young and both of them probably through some deep state conspiracies. That's going to make you more inclined throughout your life to probably believe in some of the conspiracy theories that because, you know, now clips are surfacing of him saying things about like, you know, the genesis of the AIDS crisis that seem insane. And obviously the vaccine stuff goes way back. And, um, you know, things about ethnic centric bioweapons from China. He just seems like he's very inclined 
to believe anything that is outside of the mainstream view. And I think there are a lot of people, part of why he is finding this traction is because there are a lot of people who have had, who resonate with that, who are so mistrustful of everything that if it comes from outside of a mainstream source, they're actually more likely to trust it than, you know, something that's been verified. by And it reminds me of, and Kyle, you've talked about this a lot, you know, we have a real critique of the for-profit healthcare system. We have a real critique of big pharma, the health insurers, the, the the whole military, the whole medical industrial complex, right? But that doesn't mean that you then go, oh, well, natural medicine and like this pseudo, these supplements and whatever, like that's the real path forward because you know that's even less science-based. They're that's even, even bigger snake oil salesmen. Absolutely. That's even less regulated and they're even bigger snake oil salesmen. And so I think, I mean, specifically on healthcare, I know for a fact he falls into that trap of thinking that the like, quote unquote, alternative medicine is actually better in some instances than the traditional medical establishment. But that same sort of energy pervades a lot of his views and a lot of the views I think of his online support. Yeah. By the way, there's a term for what you were just describing, which yeah. is one of my biggest pet peeves uh, in the online space. It's I call them terminal contrarians. Mm hmm where their default is like the, the whatever's outside the mainstream has to be right. It has to be right. And it's like that is just as big of groupthink as the people who yeah. in a sycophantic way believe everything mainstream media says. Yeah. The thing that RFK said, which was the most true, which people have lumped into the bin of all of his wrongness, mm. is like, yeah, my dad was killed by the, or my uh, uncle was killed by the CIA. It's like, wait, no, don't add that into the, you know, all the other crazy stuff he says. Right. That's, that one's actually accurate. So, but that's, this is why, how mainstream media does a disservice in, you know, going after these types of people yeah. that they'll just be like literally everything you say. Like they won't even do the nuance that I just did where I was like on the Wi-Fi claim it's agnostic, right? We don't know yet, but he could be right. He could be wrong, right? Yeah. They don't do that agnosticism. They do or the, you're wrong about everything, even the thing you're right about. Right. Or acknowledge with the COVID vaccine that it didn't have the protection that it was initially sold of as of like, you won't even get COVID if you get the vaccine. Well, that turned out to not really be true. Did it protect against severe illness and hospitalization and death? Yes. Was it everything that it was sold as? No. So, but if you're unwilling to acknowledge that, then you give power to people who are willing to acknowledge that and then they're willing to say a whole they bunch of other step. stuff that is right. not true. Yeah. All right. Well, there you have it. Yeah. Go ahead and introduce Emily. Okay. You want to, you don't want to do Elon? No, we gone on for. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, we are very excited to talk to Emily Jashinsky. She is a writer at The Federalist and also, of course, most importantly, co-host of CounterPoints. Let's get to it. Emily Jashinsky, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, I heard that a bunch of people wanted us to go back and forth because yeah. we, you and I perhaps cover <laughs> a little more culture war stuff than the Breaking Points team does. Right. Yeah, so, so we, we are delivering. Viewer requests for the Emily and Kyle show. And I was like, let's just <laughs> let's just make it happen. All we right. don't need to wait for Sagar's approval. We can just do it right here. By the way, we sound so generic. Emily and Kyle show. Yeah, that, that sounds sound... like white people story hour. Yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> just turn on like ABC or CBS in the morning and that's the Emily and Kyle show that's random true. emily random kyle like, like matt and uh yeah katie and matt it's like similar to katie and matt has that same energy yeah we're just emily gonna talk kyle. about gardening yeah <laughs> maybe we're gonna diy home recipes. projects yeah <laughs> let's be honest i'm the one who would be that's true. <laughs> the yeah, soccer mom true. at the table that's yeah true. but to be clear soccer did not approve this oh soccer did not no. okay good. yes yeah no that makes it better he yeah. doesn't even know about it does he 
Uh, I mentioned it to him today. Oh, okay. He was he was enthusiastic. He okay. was it's soccer approved. He doesn't know that we just got like insanely baked though. That's <laughs> 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 what do you think of like politics and stuff? <laughs> he would not approve of that degeneracy. So we'll keep that to ourselves. So I wanted to get into there's Arkansas case on trans issues that I wanted to get to. We also have what I would consider a crackdown or war on drag queens, and then a little bit later on we can get into um, the Target and Bud Light boycotts potentially the Dodger stuff, and then also the Trump indictment and, and Hunter indictment as well. So let's start with the uh, the Arkansas case, where, you know, most of the headlines I'm seeing on this are saying that, you know, they, the Arkansas has struck down a ban on gender-affirming care for transgender youth. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting case because the judge said the state did not, this was a, a case brought by the ACLU on behalf of some kids and on behalf of some doctors, and they said the state didn't prove that their law um, was actually, basically they didn't prove that the medical care was harmful. They did not s provide sufficient evidence that this was, that the puberty blockers and hormones being prescribed to kids were harming their health as opposed to being uh, helpful. And therefore, it's part of the doctor's rights to be able to prescribe that care, the parents' rights to be able to approve that care, and the children's rights to be able to get that care. And the reason I think that's interesting is because the science itself is so, so difficult on this question that in Europe, um, you know, from the UK, Norway, Sweden, they started with laws that look like ours. And they've ended up really restricting that care without the American political left-right binary because they have a more concentrated, they have socialized medicine, for instance, uh, in the UK. So the Tavistock Clinic gave them a really clear sample study. Like they were able to say, we have X number of people went through this one program and we think it should be restricted. We think that, you know, it, it was being overprescribed. So US laws are out of step with what's happened in Europe, but What's interesting about that is you have judges trying to grapple with the, the studies and you have judges trying to grapple with the science and the science itself is, I think, really difficult on these cases. So, uh, sorry, just to interject because I wanted yeah. to read the quote. So the, the person involved in the case is a 17-year-old transgender boy from Arkansas uh, and the plaintiff in the lawsuit. And they said, quote, I'm so grateful the judge heard my experience of how this healthcare has changed my life for the better and saw the dangerous impact this law could have on my life and that of countless other transgender people. Uh, and the judge said that the law also violates the constitutional rights of transgender youth uh, and their parents and their medical providers. So would you say that they got it right? Or would you say to this guy, like, nah, too bad. <laughs> like, let's let's not let's not agree with this case. But the, the judge got it right or that the law? Do you think, do you think that uh, this 17-year-old who was the plaintiff who is thanking the judge, would you say to them, like, I disagree with the outcome of the case? With the outcome of the, so the law itself, I think this is one of the problems, is that on the right, there are really imperfect laws that target, I think, legitimate problems. This is a big DeSantis issue, like the Stop Woke Act. It's a very imperfect bill. Um, I'm worried more about the problem itself than the issues to, uh, than the attempts to address the problem. And so that doesn't mean I think this law is perfect. Um, I do not think a minor should be able to consent to uh, irreversible, any medicine that we don't know whether or not it has irreversible, ir irreversible damage in the long term. So puberty blockers, hormone therapy, um, I think that should wait until an adult can make the decision. A child shouldn't be able to make that decision. The parents shouldn't be able to make that decision on behalf of the child because there's the issue of developing bodies. I think- 17, man, that's kind of- I know, it is old. It, it's 
Yeah, we're not one, talking about an eight-year-old or anything. Go one on. thing I that do. I always bring up here is um, puberty blockers and hormones oftentimes get lumped together. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note puberty blockers have actually been used for a long time. Mm -hmm. For example, for girls who have early onset of puberty. Yes. And there was never the same level of concern about, you know, what this could mean for these girls for the rest of their lives. I certainly think there is some evidence that there can be consequences, right? That there right. can be health adverse effects from puberty blockers. Those are also, though, hormones can be uh, irreversible in some ways, like some of the changes that you, especially at a young age that you go through, you, yes. can't, you can't take back, right? right? Puberty blockers are a little bit different. You stop taking the puberty blockers, you go through puberty, yeah. right? So it is, I just wanna make that distinction there. Do you think that laws and these types of restrictions are even the right way to go about this? Because part of what we've seen is, you know, the politics <clears throat> of this is, a disgusting mess, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. there's, you know, on the on the right, there's certainly, and what this judge speaks to, there's certainly no attempt to actually get at the truth of what the medicine is and what the trade-offs are and what this looks like. Um, I just saw another judge actually struck down Florida's prohibition on Medicaid coverage for gender affirming <clears throat> care. There's spillover effects that go beyond just yeah. care for trans children. So, is are like politicians the right people to be deciding these things, mm -hmm. or shouldn't it be more left to doctors? families and that sort of, you know, the medical professionals and the experts who are actually on the front lines of understanding this care and balancing what I think everyone has to acknowledge is a complicated and nuanced situation that doesn't lend itself easily to a one-size-fits-all approach. I think the very legitimate and anguishing condition of gender dysphoria was being better treated by physi physicians, parents, um, before it got hyper-politicized. I absolutely think that's the ideal situation. The hormone point is a really interesting one, and the puberty blocker point is a really interesting one, puberty blockers in particular, because um, they have been used for a while. A while is interesting, though, because to me, I look at that, and I'm like, okay, so several decades is how long we've used mm -hmm. this, this treatment. Right. And that's a lot of time. In the scope of human history, it's a fairly short experiment. And I actually find that very interesting. I think that's a problem with the food we eat. I think it's a problem with the medications we take in general, that so much of it has been developed over the last several decades, to the point where we don't really know um, fully how that stuff has affected our bodies, especially in different quantities over periods of time. So for instance, with hormones and puberty blockers, you basically create a permanent patient. You really have to keep taking that stuff. And I've talked to uh, the parents, totally apolitical people and some people center left um, and kids themselves who have started down this path, ended up not really liking it, in fact, being like really upset about it. Um, and people have different experiences like the kid in this lawsuit that we're talking about. Um, so I, I get it, people have different experiences with it. But I also think we don't, we, we just really don't totally know long-term what this does to the human body when you have to keep taking it month after month after month. And that's what really concerns me. And I've seen parents go down the road recognize that. And and people who, for instance, are totally apolitical, I've talked to them myself, someone from my hometown who got caught up in one of these national lawsuits. And they have been, they have come down not on the side of the left, but on the side of the people who have been trying to push back. And that's not just people on the left, it's people sort of on the right, the center, um, the turfs, of course, you know, it's, it's a big community. And uh, it's just, but to your point, Crystal, even having to have those conversations, even having to hear that from the 17-year-old in the lawsuit, it just sucks that we're talking about this in the sort of like Democrat versus Republican political uh, thunderdome. So a couple things. First of all, I would say the detransition rate is super low in the U.S., which leads me to believe that the overwhelming majority of people, they start going down this path. They're not doing it willy-nilly. They ultimately are like, this is definitely the right thing for me. Is that adults or kids? 
uh, overall, the detransition rate I've seen is very, very low. I mean, it's over, what, 95% of people who end up, if they start going down the path, they continue going down the path. I'd also say the point that, like, this is something you have to take forever, I don't find that particularly persuasive because, like, insulin is as well. So, you know, it, that's not, it's not like that by itself makes me go, oh, this is bad, we must reevaluate it. The other thing is, on this law, the Arkansas law also barred state funds and insurance coverage for gender-affirming care mm -hmm. and allowed private insurers to refuse to cover such care for people of any age. Yeah. So this is another thing that we've seen is like a spillover where it doesn't just impact the kids. It gets, you know, it impacts older people as well. And, and that happened in Florida as well, too, by the way. They said nurse practitioners can't, you know, give out the treatment and like 80% of trans people in Florida get it from nurse practitioners, so a lot of them are struggling to get the care they need. And then the final thing, and I'll let you respond, is, um, <clears throat> so the law in Arkansas was vetoed by Governor Asa Hutchinson, mm -hmm. a Republican, mm -hmm. and he cited the potentially dangerous consequences for trans youth in the state and called it a vast government overreach and a product of the culture war in America. But his veto was overturned by state lawmakers, but... You know, how, how do you respond to that? I feel like that's uh, pretty damning evidence that this they were taking a moderate approach and then this was an overreach. I would I would say Asa Hutchinson is a great example of a Republican who is like bought and paid for by the corporate establishment and is not to be trusted on positions when it comes to economics or culture. Tucker Carlson did a pretty persuasively um, bad interview with Asa Hutchinson when he vetoed that bill. What's it, he bought off by big trans? <laughs> well, so, so, for instance, the, the human rights campaign, their health care equality index is banned rolled by Pfizer. It's it's actually like a really, I think, severe conflict of interest that you have Pfizer bankrolling HRC's healthcare quality index, which takes into account things like gender affirming care. So puberty blockers, hormones, like that is actually a very real concern of mine. And I think it it is coloring the way that corporations are responding to advocacy groups, dark money groups, places like HRC. That is a, I find that to be a very real problem. I don't think the right is necessarily consistent um, when they say, oh, this is all being bankrolled by pharma and dark was like, the right has supported things for years that are being bankrolled by pharma and dark money. So I don't think it's a consistent position. But um, from the perspective of somebody who who is, I would I'd say, personally consistent on the question of dark money and, and on those issues, I do find that to be a, a real concern. But you don't think he thinks it's a vast government overreach? You think he was I think he does. bought for this position? No, no. I think he does think it's a vast government overreach because I think he has a concept of uh, this sort of like old Republican concept of what constitutes vast, vast government overreach, which is basically anything that creates guardrails in society. So if, if pharma says um, we have this new treatment that can be used in a way that's going to create all kinds of new patients, let's put the trans issue aside, let's say it's something else, um, I think it's a responsible policy if that drug is harmful to say no. And I think Asa Hutchinson trusts industry more than he trusts the sort of Republican system. I hear you, but Trump did right to try, which is the opposite of that. It's like, try whatever the hell you want to try if you're yeah. about to die. So he's sort of like guardrails off type thing. I'm j I think that his position on this, and then I'll let you in, Crystal, but I think his position on this, I think there is an argument from a small government conservative perspective of like, hey, let's just get the government out of this. So there, I think, there is. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's the same it's the libertarian right argument. I, I see some parallels, not to totally equate them, but with the debate around choice. Because it's like, all yeah, right, totally. this is very complicated. Every single instance is going to have its own unique <clears throat> dynamics around it. Really, the p people who are in the best position to make these challenging, you know, morally difficult decisions are yeah. the mother, the family, the doctor in consultation with the doctor. And I feel very much the same about, about this issue as well. One thing, Emily, that I'm curious about from your perspective, I, I suspect you have a, a detailed knowledge of is like, where did this all come from? Mm -hmm. Like this is this is the 
it seems to me, in terms of the online right, yeah. like this is the issue, mm-hmm. right? There's, and, and you're talking about a small percentage of the population. Yeah. When you get into some of the more niche concerns, like, you know, women's girls athletics, which none of these people have any other track record of caring about, but suddenly this is like, you know, all consuming to them. Yeah. Like, we must protect the WNBA at all costs. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, have you literally ever, what, can you name one player? Like, just one player, <laughs> just name one. Anyway, so where did this new fixation really come from? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the sex and gender stuff has obviously been interesting to the right for a long time, going back to the fixation on like the feminist movement. And mm. some of this comes from that. Actually, I remember. So my college job was working for Christina Hoff Summers. She wrote a book in 1999. She's a dissident feminist professor. Um, her story is really, really interesting. She's she's probably more attributed to the right now, even though she's like a Bernie curious type person. And she was a women's studies professor. She was a philosophy professor who was cross-listed in the women's studies department. Ended up working at the American Enterprise Institute because she wrote a book called Who Stole Feminism in 94 that got her blacklisted from the women's studies conferences and all of that fun stuff. And so when I was working for Christina uh, for a couple of years in college, I was helping her with research on it. And it was surprising back 2012, 2013, 2014, how often this very issue was coming up in the research about what's best for boys in education. You Like, what is the concept? Like, what is masculinity? What is femininity? And then that's where we started talking about, I think as a culture, toxic masculinity. And once the conversation about toxic masculinity and Gamergate started, like that snowball starts rolling down the hill, um, the whole conversation about sex and gender has just exploded with social media. The thing for me, Camille Paglia said this in 2016, I think it was, she said, when Obama did the Title IX Dear Colleague letter from the Department of Education, from his Education Secretary John King that said, you have to read gender identity into sex in Title IX, That is really, she said that's when I knew Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election. That wasn't the same for me, but I do think that was the root of so much of this because it was a blanket declaration from the federal government that changed the way every public school and every community was suddenly impacted by this major change. And from there, I think that was a huge part of like, since it started touching so many communities, the right was really freaked out by it. I I really think that the online right is obsessed with this in a way that nobody else is. Like, I always see people on the online right talking about this endlessly. And then I actually don't see that much on the left. And if anybody on the left is talking about it, it's like a reaction to a new law that's being pushed by the right. (laughs) Um, But I just wanted to give the guidelines as to how it works right now. Because, look, my default assumption was like, I understand when people say they don't, you know, kids shouldn't be allowed to do X, Y, or Z, and they want to protect the kids. I, I understand that argument. Um, But then when I actually researched it and saw how it functions right now, my reaction was like, oh, this is actually super reasonable the way it already works. So apparently puberty blockers are used if, uh, you know, they have dysphoria. Typically this occurs around age 8 to 18 for girls and a year or two later for boys. Apparently those side effects are reversible, so that doesn't strike me as as big of a deal as many people make it out to be. Mm -hmm. The guidelines recommend hormones at 16 or older. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that until I started researching this. Guidelines say that surgery should generally be reserved for those age 18 and older. The World Professional Association for Transgender Health says breast removal surgery is okay for those under 18 who have been on testosterone for at least a year. But as we already pointed out, ho- hormones start at 16. So in most cases, it's you're going to be 17 or older if you even do a top surgery. Yeah. Um, so when I look at that, I go, okay, clearly there are people who are experts in this field, who are well-versed in it, who have thought about it thoroughly. There's kids who are dealing with gender dysphoria. And there's like an intelligent process that people go through to make these decisions. So given that that's the reality, 
I feel like my default assumption becomes, well, yeah, keep the government out of it. Because now you see all these bills that are trying to, uh, you know, criminalize certain things and it's even spoil spilling over into impacting trans adults. Why is it not? Uh, is, isn't this much ado about nothing, given that these are the guidelines and they seem really reasonable? No, I think that's a helpful point. I still think there's not enough long term research. And I mean, like, that's part of the problem is people are necessarily Kind of, kind of guinea pigs that the medical community says, yes, this is safe. Um, and you're willing as an adult to go through and be one of the people who spends a lifetime um, on these medications, even if it's like insulin. We don't know. We, we truly don't know that quantity with that much time, how much this would affect people, uh, not just physically, but also mental health. Testosterone Hormones are a really powerful component of our mental health. And so I think the divide in, in the conversation here is that I don't think there's enough evidence to say this isn't malpractice you think there is enough evidence to say it isn't malpractice. And so that informs my approach to the policies. Well, I'm just taking their word for it, right? Like, we know that if they don't take it, in cases of people that have severe gender dysphoria, that's when they have the suicidal ideation and they're severely depressed and they have the anxiety. And I, just from personal anecdotal experience, I've had people reach out to me doing my show and they explain to me, like, look, I have gender dysphoria, I'm trans. As soon as I, you know, started transitioning and having gender affirming care, I felt much better. Yeah. So I look at that and I go, God bless, right? Like, what am I going to do? Override? Totally. I just, I've heard the opposite. I mean, I've heard people who have said that it was... But it's a numbers game, right? There's the, the, the studies on that are pretty mixed, though, on suicidal ideation post and pre. There's some that does show that. And there are also physicians that have taken a lot of risks to say they're uncomfortable with the treatment. Well, why is they... the detransition rate so low then? I feel like if what you were saying was true, it'd be like 70% detransition rate. We just don't see that. We see like 1% to 5% detransition rate. Because I think there's been, a, in the last couple of years, there's a lot of evidence to suggest there were transitions both socially and medically that were part of a social contagion. And I would expect, and people are more than welcome to fact check me on this in 10 years. Um, but I would expect that as the research comes out, based on conversations that I've had with people, based on medical professionals that I've talked to, it's hard to say. But I would expect yeah. in 10 years we see different we see different stat stats and studies on that. So I think that the social contagion thing is very disputed. Yeah. But even if I we, think the anti-trans stuff is social but, contagion. But listen, <laughs> well, even, I think both true. <laughs> that's true. Even okay, even if we say okay, there's a social contagion going on, and that's why you see a rise the number of people who are identifying as trans or non-binary or whatever, which again highly disputed. But let let's say that that's the case. To me, the argument that you're making about you know these treatments haven't been tested over a hundred years or whatever, mm -hmm. you could basically make against every medicine that's on the market. I agree. And so you know, at some point, you have to go like, this is the research we have. We know that if you don't follow these you know clinically tested procedures, that you're going to have these issues, and you're going to have health issues, and you're going to have depression and suicide ideation, and all those things. So we're taking a calculate calculated risk here. To me, the problem comes in when you have the government trying to come between you and your doctor and say, well, your doctor, who's an expert, may say that this is the best thing for you, and you may agree with that finding, but we, you know, Ron DeSantis or <laughs> Donald Trump mm -hmm. or Asa Hutchinson or whoever mm -hmm. it is, we actually know better, and we are going to ban you from getting a medically approved, clinically tested treatment that your doctor recommends. And that seems to have much broader implications to me than just with regards to the issue of um, tra transitioning. Well, this is another interesting point about the online right. For me, who kind of grew up as a conservative in the Tea Party era, um, although not always sort of a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, this has been a huge wake-up call about dark money, about corporations. Mm. Uh, but it comes from the trans issue, really? Not not just the trans issue, but uh, genuinely the, uh, the like food, 
medicine. The online right is freaking out about health right now. And there's like this big, remember when Tucker Carlson had the like the balls? Yeah, the ball tanning thing. The ball tanning thing. I recommended to doing and I'm traumatized forever now. (laughs) Why did you have to do that to me? Sorry. There's cameras on. (laughs) Why did you have to do that to them? (laughs) Okay, well, anyway, as much as I can try to refocus my brain. um, But like actually that I think is is a wake up in general. I think some of the interest in RFK Jr. and in Marianne comes from that. Uh, because people on the right are don't saying... Don't equate those two. <laughs> don't equate those two. <laughs> no, but I Marianne think... Marianne is a gym. So, oh, agreed. But the the question of, like, what we've been putting into our bodies for, like, the past hundred years, some of these things, like, for instance, canola oil. Uh, this is, like, an incredibly new thing for humans to be consuming in massive quantities, and there's such corporate capture in the regulatory a- agencies that we have not questioned it. Yeah. Like, yep. and that's... that's and So, like, when... It, it is true. Like, we have said... We say, like, let go and let God, and, like, let the doctors say we're the experts on this i think a lot of those decisions have actually and will continue to prove to have been wrong and to a certain extent you have to let them do that but at the same time i think there's a lot of evidence especially on issues like this one that uh when people have no incentive to speak out because they're going to be called bigoted or a turf or whatever for having questions, but see, then me, you get doctors who are, you, you can't really trust the opinion in broad listen, senses lord knows we have critique a, a wide-ranging critique of for-profit healthcare, yeah, big pharma, that. corrupt influence, etc. Cares about they don't. But obviously, that's I, what I care about. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's no, fair, no, no, I don't want to. I mean, I'm not casting aspersions on you, exactly. but I think the rest of the online. <laughs> right, right, are you like, like whatever else I is going on out there? Is more like what they do. But like the idea that an improvement to the current system is like, so let's put Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden in charge of your health care and like determine what sort of treatments you McCarthy. can get. Yeah. Right, and Kevin McCarthy yeah. and Mitch McConnell. Like that doesn't seem like a solution to me. And and that's where to get to Kyle's point about like, this is not what they really care about. All that energy, which is in cer- certain ways righteous around concern around our food, concern around our health, concern around corruption, all of those things, like to the idea that there's any sort of nascent awakening there on the right, it all then gets channeled into the most superficial critiques of like, and the problem is because they had a gay person on the corporate board or because <laughs> Target did a pride display. Yeah, like no, that's agree. where the issue is. And it's like, wait, you were you were starting down the path and now it's just been completely diverted to something that, look, I'm sure Target is annoyed right now by the protests and boycotts. Does it hurt them at all if they have to like pull their pride display? No, no they don't care. No. They don't care. I mean, Bud Light also, they've taken a hit from the boycotts, et cetera. Do you think that they're real LGBTQ allies? No, they just thought they would like use a trans influencer to make more money. So yeah. Yeah. you're not hitting them where it hurts. You're not changing the system. You just have this like superficial, like, let's just throw woke no, out there I, and and totally divert any reasonable energy. I'm, I'm sorry. I have to go further because I don't like <laughs> if there, a concern was actually like, oh, yeah, with the rights waking up to like concerns about corporate power. As part of the Inflation Reduction Act, Biden did a 15% corporate minimum tax rate for all corporations. This is at a time they used to pay nothing in taxes or someone would pay a negative income tax rate, which is literally they're getting like a net subsidy from the taxpayers. Yeah. Not a single person on the right was like, yep. face Joe Biden, 15% <laughs> corporate minimum tax rate. These people don't care. It's not Wait, about that. Are you talking about Republican politicians? Or are you talking about both. regular talking Republicans? About both. Nobody, nobody gives credit. Like, okay, hold on. Poll, Joe Biden's sure. net put, brought jobs back here. Trump net outsourced 200,000 jobs. Not a single person on the right has been like, based Biden, yeah, standing up corporations. A, well, so politicians, I'll, I'll crystal. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, partly that's because none of that is being told to them in conservative media. They that's just number dismiss one. it if it is. But anyway. if you poll, if you poll Republicans, you will see some 
uh, concern about corporate power. You will see a majority of people saying corporations should be taxed more. Agreed, right. So I would say among regular people who are Republicans, there is some nascent interest in yeah. curbing corporate power. And I would say elites and media yeah. manipulate them into like, and it's because they had a diversity training. I'm with you, but it's nominal versus effective. It's one thing to say to a pollster, but then you turn around and vote for like Jim Inhofe. And it's like, okay, there's sort of a disconnect here, isn't there? Well, and it's like the DNC. So like, it's what it's like what the DNC does with candidates. It's actually pretty hard for Republicans, especially since this stuff has trickled into the kind of conservative bloodstream very slowly. Like, I actually agree. There's way too little coverage. The CHIPS Act was bipartisan and that did bring jobs back. Although like people like Marco Rubio pulled their votes at the last minute because it did have carve-outs for Intel and yeah. yeah. But all that is to say, um, it's trickling very slowly into the bloodstream. The conservative movement is trying to catch up with it, but I think a huge part of the problem is that the right is way too freaking online. You see this with the DeSantis and Trump campaigns who are just mired in these stupid conflicts. And the same thing with the, the very online capital V, capital O right pundits who are mired in these stupid online conflicts that have absolutely nothing to do with the daily life of the average conservative voter, Republican voter, Democrat voter. And that's where, again, people who are sitting around um, looking at our politics and going, what the heck, basically, then look and say, I have nobody speaking for me and I'll vote for Jim Inhofe uh, because the the person on the left is, uh, from my perspective, even worse on a host of different issues. But it's just a, I mean, it's a disaster. Basically, it, Well, that's around. a point of full agreement. I think that DeSantis <laughs> is probably one of the most online politicians of all time. I think Trump right. is slightly less, but that's just because he's older. And he's he, online he in a different be, way. Yeah, he's online yeah. in a different way. He's exactly. in a different he's like boomer. meme um, world. He's in more like Facebook yeah. meme, boomer Facebook meme. <laughs> online exactly yeah. Twitter. yeah but somehow still bleeding by a thousand points anyway um so i want to you brought the boycotts i want to get yeah. to that in a second and i also i also want to get to like there's also a crackdown on like drag shows i want to ask you about that yeah. but uh before we do that i just on the social contagion point because i feel like this is sort of where there's the biggest breakdown between the right and the left mm. um i would be willing to concede that it's possible that there's some semblance of a quote-unquote social contagion but i would also say these are not the people who are getting surgery these yeah, are not no, the people true. who wake up and chop off their dick and balls like on a whim. No, these are the people who are like, I'm going to dress as the opposite gender yeah. for I'm a year and a half. And I'm going to say, all right, no. this is dumb. I'm going back. Like, that's the social contagion. I feel like the people who are actually getting hormone treatment or taking puberty blockers or, you know, getting surgeries, I feel like these are the people who definitely struggle with gender dysphoria, which is one of the reasons why I'm very supportive of the trans community, because I feel like they're going through something that's difficult and they're only going to take action if they feel like they absolutely need to take action. Everybody else who's like a quote-unquote trans trender, I concede to you that that could exist, mm -hmm. uh, very well may exist, but I just think those are the ones who are going to get over it and get out of it anytime. And they don't have gender dysphoria, so I don't really care. They could pretend to be the opposite gender however long they Part want, and then they'll go back. Teenage sorting out of identity that we all do in our own special ways. Totally. Will you uh, uh, know how I feel about James Vanderbeek? <laughs> <laughs> part Austin's of my great. teenage sorting. <laughs> uh, but no, no, no. I think I, I, uh, social social transitioning is very different than medical transitioning. There's no question about it. I have plenty of problems and I've spoken to people who have problems who, from personal experience with the social transition aspect of it. But I think it is totally different. And I think it has been a tactical, a tactical and moral error from the right in these conversations to not treat gender dysphoria as the incredibly serious medical condition mm -hmm. that it absolutely is and to not... Uh, have deference and empathy to the people who are dealing with this. They don't want to be dealing with it. Nobody would want that level of pain and suffering for themselves or for their community or their family members. So I think that has been a huge problem on the right. I think it's a telling problem, absolutely, because it's like this blinder, like 
if it is LGBT, then it is put in this category. Yeah. And um, I'm not opening my heart up to it. I have talked to some people sincerely on the right who do work with people who have gone through this. But um, on the whole, I think it is you know, it, it is not an own the libs argument. Um, it is way too serious to be an own the libs argument. And then um, what do you make of there was just some polling that came out, um, and this is something that you and I, Emily, have talked about before, but in the context of uh, Ted Cruz, gay icon, question mark, um, yes. Yes. <laughs> where there was kind of, okay, after a Obergefell, it was like, all right, gay marriage is a thing, you know, we're just going to be okay with it. Republicans, now a majority, say, all right, we're fine with gay marriage. But now you're seeing those numbers retreat, mm. and you're seeing Ted Cruz 41% tweeting- 41% to be- Exactly. Yeah, you're seeing Ted Cruz tweet some really innocuous stuff about a really horrific law. Gay people, people shouldn't be murdered for right. being gay. Literally. You <laughs> <go>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, Trump, as recently as actually 2020, he had pride merchandise that he and he oh, used yeah. to brag yeah. about being the most pro-gay president ever elected because technically he was the first president elected who actually was in favor of gay marriage when he was running for election because Barack Obama hadn't gotten there yet when he was running in 2012. So what do you make of the fact that what started is like, we're going to pick this niche issue where people have genuine discomfort around kids transitioning and around girls sports. And then it's going to creep into also, by the way, we're going to ban drag shows and we're going to go mm -hmm. after like, you know, adults who are just like living their lives and making choices that I think adults should be able to make. And now it does seem to be permeating into even like, you know, acknowledging gay people, accepting gay marriage, pride displays at Target, et cetera. What do you make of that creep and what it means for the future, too, of the conservative movement? Yeah, I think I was thinking about this last week with Starbucks starting to reportedly, according to some of the union or yeah. organizers, like quietly not do pride at their local mm -hmm. store. And I was thinking, you know, Starbucks has done this for years. Like, actually, Starbucks was ahead of the country on gay marriage and yeah. was ahead of the country. Build themselves as progressive and all this stuff. Right. Yes. Yeah. Seattle company, like LGBT friendly, has been for years. So why on earth now when the numbers of support for gay marriage are way higher than they are in, say, 2007, when even Democratic candidates, for the most part, were running against gay marriage, why would they ever be doing this now? And um, I think it's really the, the T part of that. And that beca because so many of people are saying, like, it's because pride is now LGBT and the T is now so politicized. Um, companies and and so controversial, like the numbers on the T are not where they are in the LGB. And so if it's necessarily the LGB is, is necessarily accepting every spectrum of the T part, meaning like every spectrum of the agenda. So uh, women's sports, et cetera, et cetera. That's where um, the numbers might dip. And that's where you might see our, our very socially conscious, responsible corporations start backing away from the LGBT as a whole um, because there has been so much controversy on the T. And that's strange. So I cover the Daily Wire quite a bit for my show because they give me so much material that I cannot <laughs> help myself. And just to give an example here, you have uh, Michael Knoll said, we should go back to the year 1220 when it comes to <laughs> social policy. He said 1950 is not enough. Yeah. Um, you know, Matt Walsh, he did the, the What is a Woman movie, but he also has said on Twitter that he basically thinks transitioning should be illegal for everybody. Like you should criminally go after the doctors, even if they're doing it for adults. Um, you've had, you know, Ben Shapiro is a, a prominent opponent of gay marriage. Um, 
uh, Jordan Peterson said something as well recently. Oh, that gays were better off oppressed by straight people than they are uh, working with trans people. So um, I guess the point <laughs> I'm trying to make one. is I don't think that there's some highfalutin intelligent reason why we're backsliding here. I think that the, the very hardcore socially conservative voices are now like coming out of the closet and leading the way and aggressively charging. And as a result of that, we've gone from whatever the number was, 53%, 54% support for Republicans for gay marriage. That was dropped all the way down to 41%. And it may continue to go. But do you agree with me that like this is not helping the right at all. In fact, we even saw this in the midterms in the last elections, how it, the right jumped the shark in a sense with the election denialism, but also being, you know, Roe versus Wade being overturned and then some Republicans continuing to go further and say we want to restrict it even more. Do you agree that broadly speaking for normie America, this sort of extreme social conservatism is not a benefit electorally. If anything, it's going to hurt them more. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. And the problem is, so from my perspective, my perspective on this is that the Republican establishment has actually never supported the sort of like traditional Christian conservative agenda with more than just sort of talking points. Like they did not, like at the RNC, they were not happy. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago when Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs decision was handed down. I guarantee you they were like panicking because they don't actually believe what they say. Some of them do and they have gotten laws through that um, are definitely extreme and unhelpful politically. But I would argue that the Republican Party is not where its constituents are on all of that. And that's actually been harmful. So like on uh, Dobbs, for instance, because Republicans weren't willing to just be honest about what they actually believe when it comes to abortion, um, they sounded like morons. And people were like, what are you talking? What do you actually do believe? Anything? Do you want to hide from me what you believe? And that's even worse electorally than being honest about what you believe. That said, um, there are a whole host of positions I think conservative politicians, Republicans should take. Um, and even though I think they should take them, I think they would be basically politically disastrous. <laughs> I, Chris, I'll, I'm going to get you in here, but uh, I'm looking online now. I just typed in how many anti-abortion laws since Dobbs have passed. And, you know, I'm getting Guttmacher Institute six months post row. 24 U.S. states have banned abortion. I don't, it, I'm trying to click the link. It's not working, but it's to one extent or another. You know, some have gone all the way. It's about, what, 14 states that have gone all the way with, like, we're going to try to ban it from conception. So I don't know. I think they believe it more than you think they believe it. Or at the very least, they're pandering so much that they will propose these bills. There's some, and some of them were already on the books, so it reverted Yeah, the snapback right laws, yeah. that is true. But yeah. they're not rolling them back for a reason. I think they believe it. Go ahead. What do you think this means for the so-called barstool conservatism mm. that um, Sagar talks about, that Portnoy talks about, where the, the vibe was like, all right, these like abortion, gay marriage stuff, those are the cultural issues of the past. Right. And, you know, we're we're not going to worry about those because we're basically pro-choice. We're good, cool with gay people. Like our buddies are, we have gay mm -hmm. buddies, whatever. We're fine. Um, but we're worried about maybe transgender kids, like that's the thing that we're worried about. We're worried about wokeness and CRT. That's yeah. the thing we're worried about. But now it seems like those legacy 1990s, early 2000s cultural fights are back and with a vengeance and bigger than ever, even as, yeah, trans issues and CRT is still out there and still quite hot and percolating as well. So do you think that this is a problem for this, you know, this, new sort of realignment or this sort of barstool conservatism idea of we don't have to worry about the abortion and gay marriage fight anymore. We can be on board with these new hot cultural issues. That's such an interesting question. I think there are certain candidates who will be able to pull barstool sort of conservatism or barstool candidacies off, barstool Republican candidacies off, because 
they're just able to talk about these things better. Like Donald Trump is a, an example of that. Like the way he talked about trans issues, gay issues, abortion in 2016, for whatever reason, it worked for him and he barely pulled off that election, but he did. So I, I think there's some people who can get away with it. On the whole, I think Barstool conservatism is an impossible coalition. I don't think, like for instance, um, you know, I'm fully anti-abortion and I think that's representative of most Republican voters. Not all, but most, like a majority of Republican voters. That makes it basically impossible possible because the if, if you believe what I believe on abortion, it's a moral imperative to talk about it a lot, not just to sort of throw it in the background and like get away mm -hmm. with, but like to talk about it a lot. And that is that is a non-starter for so many people because they believe the opposite of what I believe and they believe the opposite of what those candidates believe. So that's out the window immediately for so many Republican candidates, specifically just because of abortion. And so I don't think it can ever really work. Yeah. I mean, to your point about barstool conservatism, I think that that's sort of, even though it might not look like it online, it actually is the default conservatism because it's only, I'm looking at the numbers now, May 2023 poll from Gallup, only 13% of the country wants to make abortion illegal in all circumstances. Yeah. So that means there's a hell of a lot of conservatives who are like, yeah, I'm somewhat conservative on abortion, but I'm not going to ban it in all circumstances. But they're not the people who <laughs> vote on the issue and yeah. who are organized on the issue. Exactly. And so that's why it's a disproportionately powerful force. Well, yeah, they're, they're more organized, the anti-abortion types, and that's why they're winning in a lot of states. Like I said, 16 states it actually is where they have near total abortion bans now. And what's the number? So like, and that's interesting because it's sort of a mirror image um, with like the Northam policy in Virginia or the Cuomo policy in New York that became like super hot button issues a couple of years ago. You'll probably have maybe around 10 percent, 13 percent of the country that agrees abortion should be uh, legal in, at that point of a pregnancy. 34 percent say legal under any circumstance. Under any circumstance. OK, so 34 percent legal mm -hmm. under any circumstance. So that's probably representative of where a lot of Democrat voters are, um, but not where a lot of independent Republican voters are. And that I think is it, the, the media doesn't talk about that, but it's also a problem for Democrats. It would be a bigger problem if the media talked about well, it. Well, the, I, I would say, I'm sorry. I was going to say, <laughs> I think that's true. I think anytime you are, like Republicans have been very effective on this issue when they have put the focus to those, you yeah. know, the, the baby's about to be delivered. And I, you know, personally think that is sort of morally indefensible, frankly. But, and I think the majority of American people when faced with that set of facts would say that's morally indefensible. Right. But the problem is now that Roe is overturned and now you have Dobbs, yes. that's not where the battle is being waged. 100%. The battle is being waged over, are we going to have a complete ban? Are we, it's, it's being waged over the extreme circumstances in the other direction. Are right. we going to force a 12-year-old who was raped by her uncle to carry her baby to term? 100%. That's because of this decision. Yeah. That's now where the debate necessarily is going to be focused. So I see a lot of like... RNC types trying to say like, oh, we just need to get back on the offense and force them to talk about like, you know, third trimester right. abortions. Right. That ship has sailed Agreed. just because of what the policy landscape is now and where the, the, where the battle is being fought. And I, and I would just say, I do think it's a bit of a straw man uh, of the left or Democratic majority position, because while there are some psychos online who might defend like up till the last second type abortions, the reality is the default perspective on the left is we just support Roe versus Wade. And Roe versus Wade is a very, you know, nuanced decision where they basically said, um, totally, it's your own right in the first trimester. And then the second trimester, you could have some health regulations. Then the third trimester, if states so choose, they can ban it. So I do think most, you know, I consider myself on the left, but obviously I think if you're nine months in and it's willy nilly and there's no overriding health reason and you're like, yeah, I'm just going to terminate the pregnancy. No, you know, there, there's got to be some rules and regulations around it. It's actually a very nuanced conversation. And I do think most people on the left, if you talk to them one on one, they'll tell you they actually do have more 
nuanced takes on it, which is why the majority position of the country is abortion should be legal, but with some restrictions. Yeah. And that's where that 13 percent um, that dominates sort of the conservative movement position on activism and the, the pro-life movement or the, the anti-abortion movement. I, I don't understand why people have a problem being called anti-abortion if they're really anti-abortion. But uh, that aside, um, the 13 percent of the country that's represented by them, really small slice of the country, um, that's, a, I think, a, a similar phenomenon where you have like a moderate Southern governor in Ralph Northam or a supposedly moderate Andrew Cuomo passing the laws that they pass, it's because that sort of activist uh, arena on the left is also dominated by people who, and that's a problem with, with money, frankly, in general, money and politics in general, but it's dominated by people who actually will make the the ideological argument that you should go through a third trimester with those Yeah, I, I, I would actually just say, agree with you on that. I, I, I think having been in these like pro-choice spaces, yeah, the I mean, Almost by definition, the people who are going to be most engaged in these debates are going to be the people who have the ideological fringe position. Right. There's just no way around that. It's the one issue where I said in the 2016 primary mm -hmm. that I agree more with Hillary Clinton than I agree with Bernie Sanders. Because Hillary said, hmm. yeah, late term, I don't know, you know, it gets a I little mean, sketchy at some point. And Bernie was like, you get oh, to a point where this, <laughs> this is a baby. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, you get, I you get to a point where you're like, say, this is a baby. I just want to add the caveat here because I think it's super important that First of all, like 90% of abortions happen before like 12 weeks, never yeah, mind yeah, 22 yeah, yeah. weeks where it's like 98%. So you're talking about like 1% of abortions. And in those instances, the overwhelming majority of the time, it's because, you know, the mother's life is in danger. Or the fetus yeah. is going to die anyway. So I just want to, I don't want to, I just don't want to give people the misperception that, that this like, is a common occurrence. There's 7 million examples every year of late term abortion right. just shoving scissors into a baby's head. That's Again, this is Although not something that's done casually. And and I think if you are, I think for anybody, whether you're pro-life or not, that it happens even once is, you know, you can't just hand wave that away and say, oh, well, it was only one like baby that was killed. Right, <laughs> like, right. it's still I, I immoral. But what I was going to say is to steel man the position of uh, of people who say, no, it has to be no restrictions up to the moment of birth. Yeah. What I think is a reasonable argument is that the minute that you start introducing these restrictions, it's kind of a slippery slope. Mm. And you get into these cases, and we've seen this play out now in the post-Roe landscape, where they'll put in an exception, for example, for like the life of the mother. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have, uh, you have, you can have an abortion, or it's banned in the third trimester, except in the instances of the health or life of the mother. Well, that actually becomes very difficult to define. Yeah. Because then you're left up to like, these situations where women are being told, go bleed out in the parking lot for a while yep. until you can actually prove that you're about to die and then maybe we'll give you the abortion. Right. And so to me, that's like the most compelling argument for keeping it without restrictions because number one, you trust women to not treat this as like some um, you know, casual situation. You recognize the moral and ethical difficulties, but you also recognize that if it's left to doctors or politicians worse to decide whether the life's mother is truly at risk in that moment, you're going to end up with women who basically die because they were unable to get an abortion up to the last time. Oh my gosh, I know. And I think that's a huge problem. Was it Ohio or Indiana? Um, one of them had a, a post-Roe, post-Dobbs post law that was so imprecise, like from the perspective of somebody that's anti-abortion, was it was so poorly written that we did see some of these horrible circumstances start to pop up. So I think it's incumbent on anybody who calls themselves anti-abortion or anybody who calls themselves pro-life to be sure that those laws are absolutely airtight to prevent situations like that. Because I can 
Yeah, because hospitals are terrified and doctors are terrified of being like sued yeah. or thrown in prison right. because they performed um, an abortion when the woman wasn't technically on death's and door. And didn't want to have to get an abortion. In so many cases, right. women wanted want the babies. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I know I've been teasing this for a while now. I wanted to go ahead and jump right into it. So Tennessee's first-in-the-nation law designed to place strict limits on drag shows was found unconstitutional, a federal judge said. The law is, quote, both unconstitutionally vague and substantially overbroad and incurred discriminatory enforcement according to the ruling late Friday by U.S. District Judge Thomas Parker, who was appointed by former President Donald Trump. So there's a number of these laws that have been popping up around the country, these anti-drag uh, show laws. What are your thoughts on them? I mean, I think it's almost impossible to do a law like that that doesn't curb freedom of uh, speech in a very concerning way. Um, and this is to the point that we were sort of talking about earlier with the, the trans stuff, that like in an ideal world, it is, I mean, ridiculous that there's government intervention in so many of these cases. I do think when kids are involved and there are, um, let's say, there, there are, you guys would probably say they're isolated incidents. I would probably agree with that. Although I would say even on an isolated level, there are too many of them where there are kids in bars with like nudity happening. I've, I mean, th that does happen. I'm not saying it happens all the time, but it does happen. Should there, there probably is already a law that bans that. There's probably a law against that that's already on the books. So to have to pass a new law, I don't think you need, and you probably run the risk. This is the same, I think it's the same thing about the Stop Woke Act that DeSantis passed. Like there are plenty of things in the Stop Woke Act that you could sue right, that you could sue over. You didn't mm -hmm. need new legislation to start dealing with them. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is probably true in this case when there's legitimately something that's putting a kid in a bad situation, it's probably already uh, on the books. So um, I think the point that a lot of people make is it's very selective because, for example, Hooters is a well-known American, you know, Chain. Re establishment. People yeah, take their kids there, and you have women walk around with their titties out and their ass out, and like nobody really says anything. Nobody on the right's like, I don't know, this is kind of weird. Uh, the also, right loves Hooters. It's like, right. has been like, defend Hooters. Yeah, and like um, another thing I saw was that there's these new beaches in Florida where kids have been, and like the right doesn't hasn't really said anything about trying to shut down the new beaches or anything like that. So it seems very selectively targeted <laughs> yeah. at drag queens or the LGBTQ community, etc. So I think that problem that people have with it to your point yeah i mean i think the common sense position is don't bring kids to adult themed things yeah but then it's like what do you do if something like that happens accidentally or otherwise it's like you just kick them out yeah just kick the family out yeah. you don't need to get the, the, the cop here to arrest somebody right. right am i wrong no and and it also conflicts with some of the other positions that the right takes on their um ability to parent and make like parenting choices mm that, uh, you know, oh, are specific yeah. to their family. Mm -hmm, I mean, there's mm -hmm. a whole, like, parental choice movement. Parental and, rights. Yeah. Right, parental rights movement. And this goes back decades, right? It's mm -hmm. got new life with, like, oh, yeah. you know, DeSantis and bands. Stop Woke and book, book bans. But this goes back years and years, tied in with the homeschool movement, et cetera. Tipper Gore. You're right. And so it, it's also at odds with people's ability to say, like, listen, this is my kid. I get to raise them the way that I want, yeah. and you don't have to approve of it. It's not your kid, mm -hmm. and the state is not going to get involved in telling me what's appropriate for my child to consume. I find that such a like fascinating point of contention now because it's like when you look at how the 
founding fathers, the framers conceived of the Constitution is that you had to have some level of moral consensus in order for us to function, that like mm. you had to agree. And we saw that break down, by the way, over slavery, that there were some people who made arguments, religious arguments even, if you yeah. use like the John Adams quote that the Constitution was made only for moral and religious people. Well, there were religious people saying that slavery was perfectly fine and that, you know, women could be beat and women could, you know, that there have been religious arguments and we have broke down our consensus over time um, and ended up in civil war, ended up in really horrible situations as a country because we didn't have that moral consensus. The parents' right question about what's appropriate, what's moral to, to show your child, I see us going in a place where that's very fundamental, that um, if, if we can't come to agreement, and I think for some good reason people disagree on these issues, but they disagree in ways that are just diametrically opposed, um, that's a breakdown of a, of a consensus that you need to function as a country. I don't know where that goes, but I don't think it's going, I mean, I think January 6th is part of that. Like, well, I, I really think that it's deep. I mean, there's some things that are like clear cut, right? right? No one is like, let the parent just like beat the kid bloody or like starve them, deny okay, them what? Literally like, assault. Right. I mean, there yeah. are things that are obviously no one's like, it's the parent's choice, but yeah. there's a whole lot in the middle where it's like, where does the family unit and the parents right to like raise their kids with the values or in the way that they want where does that end and where does, like, we got to step in for the good interests of the child mm -hmm. begin? Um, on these issues, just to echo what Kyle was saying, I mean, I I also think we live in America. These kids are on the internet. Yeah. From, they like, are seeing all sorts of depraved <laughs> I mean, shit. They're like, watching I'm secular talk. <laughs> right? I'm not, exactly. They're I'm watching not. secular talk and then somebody getting fisted right after. I mean, we can't. <laughs> but like, this is the world we live in and we're getting so precious about like seeing a drag queen. I mean, drag queens have been on primetime TV for freaking decades RuPaul now. RuPaul is super famous. Exactly. Yeah. I was a kid. She was on KTU, the station. and yeah. Yes, exactly. So the, I, I also find it just incredibly selective. I mean, even things like, you know, our youngest is in dance and when they do the recital, oh, they're supposed to have like story. full it. makeup on and no. red lips. And the song, very... tell the song. And what, the one she The lyrics to? of the song that she's dancing to. This yeah. is a six-year-old girl. Yeah. Live fast, die young, bad girls do it well. Kesha? Is that, I don't no, think it it's is uh, the, no. the anti-vax uh, woman. Oh, I don't even know. Uh, Isn't it all like I MIA? Do is zoom, zoom. Oh, it that's is. It's it. MIA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's so, the song that they're dancing. And it, I was like, and where's you know, the conservative outrage over this? Yeah. Year? And consider it granted. Okay. I have outrage. <laughs> or like the pageant culture, which is very Southern and very conservative. Yes. And, you know, you have this yes. whole like adultifying and sexualizing of these little children. And yes. it's like, everybody, nobody said anything about this. Yeah. So I think it's a problem on the right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, honestly, overall, I do think it's much ado about nothing because even you saw this with the book bans too, and they were like, you can maybe point to a couple examples where sex is mentioned in some book that's in some school library or something, and they're like, okay, we're gonna go ahead and ban this. But then you look at the next thing that's on the list, and it's like some very innocuous thing about you know diversity being okay and it's okay to be different. And they tried to ban that as well. And then recently, I covered on my show, some state flipped this back on the conservatives and said, you guys have the Utah, Bible right? in your school yeah. library, and I'm gonna ban this because I don't know if you heard the story a lot, but his own daughters rape him. Okay, we're going to leave that in the... Now, look, I would say, leave it all there. Guys, you can go buy Mein Kampf right now if you want to. That's what freedom is, yeah. right? Like, I, I get it. Don't put, like, Hustler in the freaking school library. <laughs> but if you have something that's, like, tangentially some sexual... Like, who are we kidding? We're trying to... It, it's just... It's all much ado about nothing. Lean on the side of freedom. Like you said, we kind of know when we see it. Just like what the Supreme Court said about porn and obscenity. Like, we know when we see it. That's the same thing. Like, you don't expose your kids to the things that are brazenly obvious, but, like, let's not... 
have an authoritarian crackdown and overreach in the opposite direction because drag queen story hour to me, I look at that and I'm like, how I don't understand how anybody's making a fuss about this. This is totally fine. Mm. It, so to that point on the, so the book ban point, um, we talked about this a couple weeks ago too. That is, so by PEN America, you also have PEN America and then the American Federation for Teachers, by the way, who allied against the Muslim parents in Dearborn, Michigan uh, to keep gender fluid in schools. And gender fluid is a incredibly obscene pornographic book that teaches students, is, is aimed at teaching young people how to perform oral sex, basically, and how to do other things. And there's graphic illustrations of it, blah, blah, blah. So again, to this point of where the fringes dominate politics, the fringe left is, is the American Federation of Teachers is a mainstream union. It's one of the most powerful unions in the country. And they were backing uh, the efforts to keep that book in schools. And that, according to PEN America, is the number one most targeted book. It is the book that people are actually concerned about the most. So I don't agree that imprecise laws that are, uh, so I do agree that imprecise laws that are sort of come from the backlash are not good. And like, I think that's a problem on the right 100%. I also think that it's Parents who are not on the right, like I talked to a bunch of them out in Loudoun County, people who voted for Obama, independents are also totally right to say, well, that's not nothing. Like that actually freaks me the When were you taught sex out. ed? What, eight, what grade were I you taught sex ed? I think we did it in eighth grade. What about you? When were you taught? Seventh, I want to say. Sixth for me. Because I was, I'm from New Rochelle, New York, just outside of New York City, very diverse school area. Sixth grade, I was taught it. And it's not even like before I got into sixth grade, like I knew nothing, right? So it's like, you can make an argument on free speech grounds, and you could also make an argument on like, because the next big outcry is going to be like, if they're teaching sex ed somewhere in fifth grade, they're going to be, oh, how dare you teach the, these fifth graders X, Y, and Z? And it's like, I mean, again, these uh, kids really? are all learning sex ed on the internet. But see, yeah, and, and it's again, not like, good, but that's reality. But see, this is where I think there's a real inconsistency on the right that is still, for instance, willing to take money from Facebook or Google. And like, I am uh, willing to admit that I'm not in the majority of people. Like, I actually think we should have pretty targeted uh, laws about pornography and pretty targeted laws about all of that stuff. So, How dare you? I know, what I know, I know. About? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be Freedom. consistent. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but in the in the interest of being consistent, like, I actually do believe there should be way more guardrails about that. But the right, um, there are all kinds of politicians that. Uh, uh, we'll we'll talk a big game about drag queen story hour and then still take tons of money from corporations that might be sponsoring and they don't care it's a talking point for them and there is no consistency and there hasn't been for years so i think all of those like holes that you guys have rightfully poked in the conservative movement or the republican party are all there and i agree that they're there yeah and i just i love free speech i'm like actually a free speech bro i'm one of the original free speech bros on the left and so i just my autism kicks up to a million when I start seeing like people who are just screaming about free speech all of a sudden right. like casually advocating for authoritarian restrictions in that realm. Stop woke is the same thing, by the way. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it was but... parts of it were struck down by yeah. court for that exact reason. Yeah. So uh, target boycott over LGBTQ uh, products and, you know, whatever it is. Bud Light. Yeah. Bud, Bud, Bud Light over the, the Dylan Mulvaney, the trans uh, influencer. And then you have the Dodgers boycott. The player was mad because they were honoring the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which is a LGBT group, but they were also wearing like nun outfits and they view that as like disrespectful. What are your thoughts on all these and all of the, you know, different uh, boycotts, which we're seeing a lot of now? Yeah, I think conservatives got really excited about the boycotts and uh, some of them were for good reason. Um, but like- Which ones? Well, how do you mean? Which which uh, which uh, boycotts were good? Like were, were for good reasons. I mean, I'm not a big boycotter, but I think the Bud Light one is entirely fair. I think it's like, do I think it was a stupid thing that kicked it all off, sending an influencer can to Dylan Mulvaney? Sure, but do I think people are absolutely sick 
of uh, that stuff being indulged, like a Dylan Mulvaney being invited, being invited to the White House and being treated as a woman. Um, I think it's offensive, honestly. Really? Yo, I think it's offensive right. to women that Dylan Mulvaney is selling Tampax. I think that's incredibly offensive. <laughs> and I like actually do take offense. I don't well, take offense to a different, lot, but, on the but Bud I do Light take one. offense to that. Um, the, the Bud Light one in particular, like obviously the goal here from Bud Light was like, we want to reach a new audience. We want to reach trans people. So we're going to do a trans influencer. The goal was sell, to sell beer. To sell beer, right? And so, <laughs> oh, totally. So I, I, don't, I guess I don't get where the outrage comes from if you know that that's the goal, that it's just like, we're a corporation. We want to make as much money as possible. So we want to sell it to as many people as possible. So that's why we're doing this. Because Dylan Mulvaney is, first of all, particularly political, like a political activist, basically has been to the White House and pushes for different things on political levels. And also is just such a caricature of what womanhood, womanhood is that it's, there are a lot of people who are just like, I don't want to take this from corporate America anymore. I'm sick of the charade and I'm sick, I'm sick of saying that this is um, cool and normal. And, and for this to be someone who's a TikTok influencer that might be influencing my daughters or my uh, loved ones in any way, like I'm just sick of corporations saying it's okay. That I, I think that's where it comes from. That might be, you may see that as a charitable read on why people suddenly decided to toss out the Bud Light, but I think there's just this, this simmering rage, like we've had it. Please stop telling me that this is normal. No, I, mean, I think you, I think you accurately identify where the energy comes from. I just wildly disagree with, with the view. I mean, right. right. Like this is just a trans person. I don't really know. I never actually even knew who Dylan Mulvaney was before this whole situation. And so of all the abuses of corporate America, <laughs> that it is, about. you're like, <laughs> I, I use, I have a trans influencer. That's the thing that you're like, how dare you? You could have, this is an assault. I'm like, I, um, I don't agree. Like I do, I get where the energy came from because I think there is a moral panic around all of these issues right now that is spun up by, you know, a number of conservative influencers, et cetera. I just wildly disagree with the view. So let me give you an example of what she's referring to because this is something I brought up on my show multiple times. So it wasn't that long ago that uh, the Daily Wire and the CEO, Jeremy Boring, uh, they decided we're going to make our own chocolate. Yes. And it was because, I don't know if it was Nestle or Hershey's or whoever, there's one chocolate company that pissed them off for doing some woke stuff. Yes. And so they did this, and I was remember- the green M&M situation? No, no. it was okay. not that. It was All something right. else. It was something else. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. oh no, may maybe you're right. Maybe it was it linked to that. But either way, he's like, we're going to make non-woke chocolate, right? And charge a bunch of money for it, et cetera. So they're trying to cash in on it. But the thing that I could not get out of my mind was that there was, from about a year or two ago, we got the story that Nestle was in the Supreme Court mm -hmm. because there were allegations they were using literal slave labor. Yeah. And the Supreme Court basically shrugged and said, it's so many layers removed that like, what do you want us to do about it? There's nothing we could do about it. So basically the Supreme Court like defaulted to ah, slavery. What are you going to do? It is what it is. There wasn't a fucking peep on the right over that. Nobody was like, I'm not boycotting the chocolate because, <laughs> because there's literal slavery being used for this chocolate. But the second there's like, I don't know, a trans Skittle or some shit, they're like, <laughs> It wasn't even that. It was like the green M&M wasn't allowed to be sexy anymore. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's what How it was. could you? This is I horrible. Right to jerk this, off is this, the, man. this is the end <laughs> of America. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but that, so it, it's even worse than that, I think, which is like, I think it's ridiculous for conservatives to make hay about woke chocolate when 
this is like actually not even food. Like it's barely edible to begin with. Yeah. And they're pumping us full of it with misleading advertising. And like, and so like, again, that has been a wake up call for me personally. Like I've been imbibing books on on food and big ag for like the last few years because I think the right has, has just missed a ripe opportunity to actually corral crony capitalism and to actually say we're putting kids and families first. If capitalism exists to serve children and families, as people like Marco Rubio, I think rightfully say it does. Um, and to so like capitalism isn't about free markets just for the sake of free markets. It's about families. It's about communities. It's about having strong people. Then what the hell are we doing with like, if, why are we taking issue with this little M&M and just saying we're going to make anti-woke chocolate when in fact this could be like something that is so much more important than just making a big splash with anti-woke chocolate. So I think it's actually even more ridiculous than that. Yeah. I mean, if capitalism was pro-family, then you would have the Republicans screaming at the top of their lungs for paid vacation time, paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave, unions. But you don't see. I think it's more of a posturing thing than anything else. But um, I guess uh, do I do I want to lean a little bit more into the target? I oh, know we could we could drop the Bud Light thing. I think everybody's got our thoughts. <laughs> yeah. on Bud Light. I did have a Bud Light, Light last weekend. Uh, uh, the boycott is over. The right I know. card has been revoked. <laughs> and, and you know what? I love Bud Light Lime, and I'm not giving. Oh, Bud Light Emily. Lime. <laughs> Oh, Emily. I drink that in college. Stop I drink Bud Light Lime in college. That's disgusting. You don't no. have to be in college to drink Bud Light Lime. Oh. In fact, maybe I should go get some after this. I'm going to send you guys cases. I will. Regular I'll Bud Light I'm I'll drink fine it. with. Bud, no, Bud Light, Light Lime is it's good. It reminds me of being Ooh. high on Adderall in a bar in college. <laughs> so it's beer. nostalgic. Very nostalgic. You? All right, that's fair. I'll get a secondhand like Adderall high for that. Okay. so gross, though. Um... So, all right, we're 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 good on the boycott. So the left used to do that stuff all the time too, and I always used to be like, "Really? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, there are legitimate boycotts if the if the issue is really extremely bad enough. Like, I get it, but at the same time, I don't know. It's like there's a lot of noise around it, and usually you don't see any impact at all of the company. You are seeing a little bit of an impact to Bud Light, but then it, you know everything rebounds immediately because we live in a corporatocracy. Did you want to add something? I mean, I don't object to the in general boycott tactic. I don't think it's always well executed, doesn't always have the intended result. But in general, I think that protest, which goes more directly at capital and like impacts their bottom line, is going to be more effective than like marching in the streets even. Uh -huh. you know, well, if that's you have, what they're like, trying to do on the right with Bud Light. It's just over something silly. Yeah, you know what I mean? right. No, and it's worked. I mean, it, not, it not has really. actually, it so, has because look, it'll, Starbucks, it'll bounce back. You know, look at Starbucks. Oh. I mean, as you pointed out. They're supposed to but, be this progressive, uh, and they leaned into these issues. And they have a lot of queer baristas and, you know, people who work at the company because they thought this was a place for them. So for them to see this freak out and be like, oh, we're going to dial it back, it does have an impact. Whereas if you just had, you know, a protest outside the White House or whatever, they wouldn't I have reacted. I think it's temporary. I think it's temporary. Probably is, but that, it, it's, it's... Because they're a very loud minority that's screaming about this. Yeah. Oh, we're so angry about trans stuff. Oh, and it's like... They're really loud, which is why these yeah, CEOs who don't know their ass from the elbow were like, oh, I'm scared. I'm not going to do super, it. They're super, super sensitive to yeah, any yeah, sort it, of negative anything. But then the anger is going to come from the other direction and they're going to cave right back because there's even more people on the other side who are like, who cares? Who's a trans person? Who gives a fuck? I mean, I'm, I'm basically at the point where I think corporations can just like get rid of their PR departments because our markets are now so disentangled from actual like consumer behavior that with especially with the way investors are directing their money, like financialization has made it that they're just like shifting money around to whatever company they're betting on at any given moment and i don't even think public like these these 
boycotts, I think, are like they will in a slice of time, so like a couple of months, make a dent. Um, but then because of the way investments work now, it'll just rebound and corporations basically don't even have to worry about consumers anymore because there is no free market. There's not like they're not necessarily even responding to consumers anymore. Um, and, and that is terrifying on so many levels, like not just on culture war issues, but like especially on issues when it comes to how they're just raping communities. Yeah, corporations and, are the boss. I agree with that point. I think they're just the boss. True. Like they've they've got to the top of the mountain and like any semblance of maybe you guys have some control. Yeah. Sure, sure we do. There are newspapers that could make money that private equities and and hedge funds are shutting down in different cities and just like absorbing them into There you go. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. I th I think you're right. Anyway, so final question, I'll ask you this. Um Trump and is a big question. Handle it however you like. Trump <laughs> indictment, Hunter indictment. Go. <laughs> 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 question is, Go. what are your thoughts on the Trump question indictment? Mark. What are your thoughts on the Hunter indictment? Would you compare them and say, hey, this one's unfair, this one? Like, what do you think? Mm, that, yeah, it's an interesting um, scenario just overall because Donald Trump, was it, I think we were talking about, like, I, I'm of the, like, lock them all up persuasion. Like, just, yeah. like, I, if anyone is violating laws, that especially ones that other people aren't being prosecuted for, lock them all up. I don't care if they're Republicans or Democrats, but it's also not how the system works. Um, we know it's not how the system works. I think what the Durham report said about Hillary Clinton in particular, the way James Comey's FBI handled the Hillary Clinton investigation versus the way that they were just like, oh, Igor Denchenko, um, we're going to start paying you, even though we're not even going to double check whether or not we ever found out you were a Russian asset. Like we thought maybe you were a Russian asset, but here's $200,000 because you have some uh, shit to say about Donald Trump. Um, I think that that like contrast is really stark. And I think you still see with the, um, the Espionage Act pretty clearly, if you wanted to charge Joe Biden with his documents, like he didn't obstruct. He did not obstruct. But if you wanted to charge him, if you wanted to charge Hillary Clinton with the Espionage Act over their handle of classified documents, you probably could. And so if you're going to charge Donald Trump, I get that they brought obstruction charges too, but he is charged not just on obstruction. So if you're going to do that, it's it's really not healthy to just do it to Donald Trump. And I agree he's a different situation. I agree Hunter Biden is uh, getting, I think it's, it's like controlled demolition is what Jonathan Turley predicted it would be a year ago. And I think that's exactly what we saw happen. Um, I think people are over-prosecuted and I wouldn't support, you know, Hunter Biden being a part of over-prosecution, except for the fact that so many people without his means, without his privilege, are being that, are, are getting harsher sentences than he is and are getting harsher treatment than he is. So it's a mess. But as long as we don't have double, as long as we do have double standards, I think it's even more harmful to uh, keep having a double standard. So I can accept your argument, but if and only if when Trump is brought up, you sincerely argue for him to go to prison. Because a lot of people make the argument you're making, like, oh my God, double standard, oh my God, you know, it's it's not fair the way it works. And the underlying implication is like, you should have gotten Hillary Clinton, you should have gotten Hunter Biden on more, you should have get, get Joe Biden on more. And if that is the argument, then it's like, agreed, but don't argue for Trump to get off. And I see a lot of people make that argument and then they immediately start like, arguing for Trump to get off. And it's like, no, no, no. Either you want them all to be released yeah. or you want them all to go to prison. Yeah. And the only problem I have with your argument is it's used in service in a way that I find disingenuous by a lot of people, not saying you, where then they'll just start effectively defending Trump. And it's like, wait, but you were just attacking Hillary. You were just attacking Hunter. <laughs> for the you're, same. For yeah. the same shit. And then you're like, well, let Trump off. And it's like, no, if you're going to actually take it to its logical conclusion, say all of them should get locked the fuck up. And I don't want to hear any Weasley arguments around like, oh, you know, with the whataboutism, which then points in the direction of, well, let Trump go. I don't agree with that at all. I agree. 
that they should get uh, Hunter. I agree. Um, I think they probably got him on all they could, but that's because we have a systemic issue where corruption is never investigated across parts. Yeah. They really investigate corruption. You'd have Hunter, uh, you'd have um, Jared Kushner go down as well. Oh yeah. Like, oh yeah. So I think they got him on whatever they could get him on. So I'm happy that they're you know Hunter is found guilty on something, and I agree that Hillary should have gone down. I mean, Comey listed all her crimes, and at the end of the speech was like, and that's why we're <laughs> gonna let her go. And it's like, what? You just said she did all these crimes. But I re but I think again, the, stressing the point needs to be. Oh, Trump is definitely done. 37 indictments. The crimes look super serious. He's on tape. And I actually do think it was an order of magnitude worse than Biden in particular because of the degree of the classified information he has. It wasn't like something that, you know, it was overclassified because of our overclassification right. problem, which right. is real. It was like, here's nuclear stuff. And here's like, you know, uh, vulnerabilities of the United States type stuff. Yeah. So anyway, I, I agree with you. I would just say argue for Trump to go to prison because that's where he belongs. Go ahead. Um, I was mentioning this to you before, Emily, but on the question of like two tier system of justice, there was a ex FBI analyst who was just sentenced today. This is Thursday, who had kept classified info in her bathroom, bathroom, just like our former dear leader, um, <laughs> who was sentenced, who was charged under that same part of the Espionage mm -hmm. Act, um, who did not obstruct, wasn't charged with obstruction. She actually, I don't know if she went mental or what, but she um, thought that the FBI was surveilling her, and so she, like, turned herself in. Yeah. And she pled guilty, which I think those are all sort of mitigating factors in terms of what the actual sentence becomes. But she was just sentenced to four years in prison. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I just think it demonstrates that any other regular person, if to the extent that Trump was subject to a two-tier system of justice here, he was given way more leniency than certainly any regular person would be given. All the chances they Whistleblowers. gave him. All the chances they gave him to return documents. And they basically had to catch him lying and moving boxes around before they're like, all right, what else? What else can we do here? I yeah. mean, what other choice did they really? I guess that's what I would say is if you're leading this investigation, you're trying to get the documents back and you see that he's retaining things that are genuinely important for our national defense, mm -hmm. not some like bull bullshit over classification. Mm -hmm. He's retaining them. He's storing them willy nilly. They're in Mar-a-Lago, which is like a nest, bed of, of nest of spies. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are you supposed to do? Yeah. Like you have to do the right. You have to go get them. If you think that this is, if you think anything should be classified, yeah, exactly. you kind of have to retrieve and these You got to get the documents. I, yeah. I agree. The Espionage Act is very questionable <laughs> by its nature, but the point I made to Crystal is even if it wasn't the Espionage Act, this should, should be illegal under some other statute. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know I agree. Saying? No, I totally agree with that. Although I do take a hard pivot on the question of whether I think Donald Trump should go to prison because if I had a time machine and can go back to what was it, 2015, 2016, when Comey made his speech and say, yeah, lock Hillary Clinton up, I would then say, yes, lock Donald Trump up. I think it is just like we're asking for physical danger more January 6th because she wasn't. And yeah, it was such a- can't let people similar. get away with murder though, right? Like, uh, I, mean, I, I genuinely want Hillary to get locked up. I genuinely, if they came up with something today I do too. to get locked up, I'm with you. But if they don't, I still want Trump to get locked up. Well, In the same also, way that you'd want Hillary to go- It, anyway. it doesn't do fix both. the two-tier of justice system to be like, so we're just going to let all the elites off. Right, like, yeah. Well, that's not really an improvement. I mean, but the other thing I would say is let's not pretend like for most of the base and most of Trump's defenders, it wouldn't matter if Hillary had done something similar or Biden had done something similar or what the fact, it, it really doesn't matter. They were going to find a way to justify it and say he shouldn't, 
he shouldn't be accountable for. Of course. And that's their whole thing. Seen, I mean, we've seen this play out a few times at this point. In the same way, and this is where it's difficult that the intelligence community has found and the sort of resistance left, I don't even, like the, the Nicole Wallace's, yeah. it's amazing that I'm calling her resistance left, but I don't know what else <laughs> to call her at this point, um, even though she was shilling for George W. Bush's Iraq war however long ago. But all that is to say, uh, they found and justified every reason to try and put Trump in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been doing that for years and years and years. And so for the average person who has no trust in institutions and has good reason to have no trust in institutions or the media to see what happened to Hillary Clinton and then to see what happened to Donald Trump and to have contrast there, I think it is too culturally destructive to have two different standards for the like avatars from 2016 of, of left and right. I just think it's it's too destructive at this point. If I could lock them both up for, for violating the law, um, this probably wouldn't be the law that I would lock both of them up for violating, but uh, I would. Yeah, I mean, I guess my main issue with that is like the list of actual crimes that Donald Trump has committed. Like, we're, this is child's play, the stuff that they're going after him <laughs> for now. Like, in a world that made sense, as Noam Chomsky famously said, if every post-World War II U.S. president were tried, they'd be hanged, right? Because if the Nuremberg laws were upheld, they're all war criminals. So with Trump, you have a 400% increase in drone strikes. Mm-hmm. You have, uh, he tried to illegally coup Venezuela. His first military raid as president killed a young American girl. I remember that because Obama had refused to do that raid because it was too risky. And this is a guy who had a 90% civilian death rate with drones. And even he was like, I don't know about this one, cuz. And Trump uh, approved it. And the list goes on and on. And I mean, he prosecuted people on the Espionage Act for BS reasons. Right. They trumped up charges on Julian Assange. Exactly. Like and then forget the financial. I mean, look, I was, I was leading the charge going after uh, the Clintons for the the Clinton Foundation stuff. Which mm-hmm. inc- you're taking hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars from Gulf dictatorships as Hillary is Secretary of State and you're lobbying for them to get weapons. Who are we kidding here? This is yeah. ridiculous. But with Trump, I mean, I just covered it the other day. Five million dollars from the Sultan of Oman to yeah. right. his golf courses there. My dude, you are running for president. Yeah. Jimmy Carter had to sell his peanut farm because they were afraid some foreign country could slip in money through there, right? Right. So the yeah. list goes on to Jared Kushner with the $2 billion. Trump literally vetoed a resolution that would have stopped the U.S. support for the Saudi Arabian genocide in Yemen because he was so financially connected. I can go on and on and on and on and on. So I guess the fact that the laundry list is so long of all the crimes that he's committed, it's like, I don't care. It's like when they got Al Capone on tax evasion. For the love of God, get him on fucking anything. Put him in prison for jaywalking for all I give a fuck. <laughs> Just get him out of here. Get him out of here. The, the last thing that I'll say on this point is, you know, there's a lot of discussion about two-tier system of justice, et cetera, on the right from a group of people who, I mean, there's overwhelming ev- evidence that the poor and especially poor black people mm-hmm. are disproportionately criminalized and they don't have the same concern about the two-tier system of justice when it comes to them. The minute there's even an inkling of some partisanship in uh, application of justice, they're they're all in, right? And and there's not even real evidence to back up that that's a consistent, you know, across the board that the that's where the dividing line is. The dividing line is really between the wealthy and the poor, and like I said, disproportionately poor black people. Did, did you see what DeSantis said? No. DeSantis makes this point. It drives me crazy, but he's like, if Hunter Biden was a Republican, he'd already be in prison. And I'm like, <laughs> my dude. The Republican Hunter Biden Kushner. is named Jared Kushner. <laughs> yeah. Not even an investigation over the $2 billion he took from oh, Saudi yeah. Arabia. Like, no. Who are we kidding? Well, and and again, like that was under Donald Trump's watch, Mr. Drain right? the Swamp. Yeah. You had Jared you Kushner just taking mm-hmm. license to do corruption left and right. 
basically. Yes. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Hunter Biden and Jared Kushner are exactly, and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is exactly the America that we deserve. And <laughs> we, we earned it. Like, we absolutely earned yeah. it. And it is completely tragic. And I'm so pessimistic and don't see a way out of it. But <laughs> there you yeah, go. I mean, I, I sort of feel the same way. But um, anyway. Emily, this has been super fun. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks I, for I, really guys. It. I hope yeah. you enjoyed it, too. Fun. Thanks for having um, me. Tell you got to do more debatey things like this. I uh, think people like it. I yeah, like well, it's pink. hard to find people who are as good faith as Emily. That's so, true. yeah. Cage match? Like Elon and Zuckerberg. Let's talk. Let's talk. I, yeah, Listen, I'm not going I, up against that. I don't want you two in cage in a cage match because there would immediate people would not view it like it's in, a whole, in a wholesome way. It would be banned in Florida. Where the bikinis? Where's the Jello? Florida. So true. Exactly. They'd be passing yeah. laws to. No, actually, they would. That would be fine. That would be fine. Yeah, you're right. The trans equivalent yeah. of that. That would you're be right. banned. Right. Um, tell people where they can find you. What you're up to. All that good stuff. Uh, cool. Yeah, I host a daily. People don't know that for some reason, but I do host a daily podcast called Federalist Radio Hour. It's every day. Um, so people can find it over at Federal. Find me over at Federalist Radio Hour. Just about every day over at the Federalist. At Emily Jashinsky on Twitter and, and Instagram. Um, that's about it. And every every Wednesday on Counter oh, Wednesday, guys. And I actually will be doing a show together this week because yes. Ryan is going to be out. So I'll be sitting in for Ryan. So if and enjoy, more after that, by the way. What do you mean? Because Sagar is going to be. That's right. Sagar yeah. will, is going to India for his first of two weddings. <laughs> so. They're going to hit a million subs when Crystal's gone or when Sagar's gone. Yeah, that looks gonna, increasingly likely. It's be brutal. So, also, shout out, go subscribe to Breaking Points so that we can yeah. get that over the over the line it's before Sagar leaves for India. Or so that I can have the stolen valor. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just bring in a giant bottle of champagne. That actually it. would be amazing if you were co. If it's a day like we're hosting together, and that'd be fun. All right, make that happen. Anyway, <laughs> love you guys. Um, enjoy your weekend, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>